the grain. Looking at big ideas through the lens of small communities. A podcast where arts, culture, and the human experience intersect. Tackling serious topics through fun perspectives. Seeking that grain of truth. So grain friendly. Oh, that, see, I'm a professional. See how I started that off? Grain Framery. <laughs> we are back. Hey, Jody. Hello, Darian. Jody wasn't sure she wanted to answer me. Isabel is not here, but we say hello, Isabel. She wouldn't say anything if she were no, she here. <laughs> she, she she's always quiet. <laughs> All right. So today, family, we have yet another member of the family bringing forth her rich story. We have the one, the only, Laura Kissel. Hi, Darian. Hi, Jamie. Hey, Laura. How are you? Great. How are y'all good, today? Good, good. We're good. We're good. We're good. So um, before we got on, we are playing a little guest game. We got so much, so much fun that we had to stop it. But my question, we're going to start this episode off with a question. And my question is... To you, Laura, because I think, I know Jody knows. What do the three of us have in common? Go. Mm, I was going to say we live in 29203 area code, but I think you already corrected me that that's not right. As a matter of fact, Um, right now, you're the only one actually living in 29203. I live in 29210, but I'm trying to get in 29203 even as we speak literally. And Jody, what's your actual zip code? I'm in 29910, way down in Bluffton. So second swing. Okay, so my second guess is we all three have some kind of connection to the Midwest. Not the Midwest for me, nope. What's your your connection to the Midwest, Laura? I grew up in Kansas. Oh, wow. All right, hold on to that. We're coming back to that. All right, one more time. Third time is a charm. Come on. One more time, come on. Well, are we all artists? Ooh, ooh real close, real close. Very close. Go, 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 go. Are we all uh, filmmakers? Mm, no. Not quite. Almost, though. You're dancing around it. Ooh, yes, you oh, are. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we are all... all Indie Grits Fellow. That was going to be right. That was going to be my next thing that I was going to say. Yeah. I know. That's why I cut you off because I wanted to get it first. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, right on. That that was a great program. I think that's where we met, Darian. That's exactly where we met. So, Laura, for our Green family who are not in South Carolina or who even are in Columbia but don't know what Indie Grits is, would you tell them what the Indie Grits, what's an Indie Grits Fellow is? Yeah, so the Indigrits uh, Film Festival is a festival of the Nickelodeon Theater that's been around for more than a decade now. And of course, during the pandemic has taken a bit of a pause or you know changed its format. But um, the Indigrits Fellows is a program that I believe in part was sponsored by the Knight Foundation. I might get that, that funding stream wrong, but uh, it's a program that really tries to connect uh, artists who work in visual media in one way or another to um, meet one another and to co-create work, usually around a theme that then gets programmed into the festival that year. So the the fellows start working maybe in the in the fall, uh, and then this festival happens in the spring. And the work that's generated by the fellows gets um, you know screened, exhibited, performed during Indie Grits. So in- I want to get back to that because I think there's some good discussion between the three of us. Because Laura, you and I shared the same year, so we had the same theme. But Jody just completed her tenure as a fellow, so she had a different theme. But I think that's some fun talking. But first, let's get back to you, Kansas girl. <laughs> so, okay, Laura, Laura Kissel, tell us who you are. Where are you from? Let's start with that. Where are you from? Okay, well, that's always a hard one to answer in some ways for me because um, I was born in Kentucky, but. Uh, my parents very soon thereafter moved to Texas and I lived in Texas for nine years. And then uh, when I guess was about nine years old, my parents moved to Kansas. And so my formative years were spent in Kansas. And so I guess I sort of identify as a Kansan in some ways because of that. I know that landscape had a really 
you know, profound, I think, impact on me. Uh, and uh, my parents moved, went, so I went to college uh, from Kansas and I went to college in upstate New York. And where'd you go? Uh, what school did you go to? Uh, a liberal arts college called Ithaca. Oh yeah, I know Ithaca. In yeah. Ithaca, yeah. New York, yeah. And then during that time, my parents left Kansas and moved to Georgia, which is where they still live. Mm. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of my geography, my geographic okay. history. Cool, 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 cool. So Ithaca, so Ithaca, New York, you go to undergrad in Ithaca, New York. Yeah. Well, Ithaca, what is it called? Ithaca University College? Ithaca College. Yeah. College, okay. You go to so school. I have visited Ithaca College many times in my youth because I grew up in Binghamton, New York, which you were close to with, with, you know, your guest when we were off air about us being maybe from upstate New York. Um, I grew up there until I was in my early twenties and, um, did not apply to Ithaca college, but, uh, I had a few friends that went there in Cornell and I also went to art school in upstate New York. Which school? So I went to Syracuse originally. Um, and then I graduated from Binghamton university. That's great. I think uh, Syracuse has a really good art school. I've heard of it. It was, yeah. I was actually studying um, metalworking and jewelry making at the time, and then I took a year off and I did an apprenticeship with a with a metal smithing um, goldsmithing company, and decided it was a little too stressful. Actually, <laughs> so I, never I went in a different direction. Story. So you were were you a smithy? Yeah, I mean, I did a little bit of everything. I never even told you about this, really. Oh, wow. mm -mm. Now, I wanted to design jewelry. And so what, with my apprenticeship, they, they uh, started out by teaching us how to repair. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, from there, you would go on to the creative side. So, I, you know, more than once, I melted somebody's, like, antique... <laughs> <laughs> great grandmother's wedding band or something. And I had to like recreate it. Um, yeah. And it's like, you know, you're working with gemstones worth, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars and it's like, don't mess it up. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. So back to school. <laughs> All right. See, see Laura, you got it. You're on the show for five minutes while we're finding out Jody's secrets. All right. So, Laura, you leave, you're at Ithaca. I guess you leave there to go to where? Yeah. So um, I, I sometimes tell my students that, oh, I graduated during a recession also. I graduated during the first Bush recession from college in the early 90s. And it was really hard to find a job at that point in time. But uh, so I moved back home to um, live with my parents for a little while. And at that point, they were in Georgia already. So they were in Athens, Georgia. And um, I started applying around for positions in Atlanta and then in Athens, too. And I, I ended up with a job at the University of Georgia working as um, I think it was called at that time a television a services technician. But I was essentially a videographer for UGA and in housed inside of a continuing education program department where we did a lot of satellite uplink services, teleconferences. We filmed all of the football games, basketball games. We did all the sports. Um, we would cut together packages for local news and Atlanta news, uh, mostly having to do with things going on at UGA or, but very sports heavy and uh, produce some shows for GPTV. Um, yeah, so I started there. So time out. So tell us, what do you do right now? Right now, I am a professor of media arts at the University of South Carolina in the School of Art and Design. And um, I'm also the director of the School of Visual Art and Design. It's an um, administrative appointment that I've been in for about four years now and have about, I think, two more years to go. So the interest, was that the beginning when you were at UGA? Did that put you on the path to where you are now? Or did you always want to make film, study film? Were you, you always interested in film? Yeah, you know, as, as a kid growing up in Kansas, in the middle of Kansas, um, wasn't exactly in the geographic center, but, you know, in a small town. And this was the 70s and 80s. So for a kid who's interested in filmmaking, there's, you know, there's not a lot you can, you can really do. Um, 
And at the time I got involved in uh, still photography, you know, in the, in the school. So my school had a um, photo lab where you could learn how to process film. So I kind of started there. We didn't have a filmmaking class, but uh, the librarian took an interest in me and really tried to help me learn video editing. And the way that he did it is he got two VCRs and he put them kind of side by side and two, two televisions. And we would, you know, press play and then press record on the other one and pause and, you know, swap the tapes out and try to edit that way. Um, so uh, this librarian, I don't even remember his name, but he really tried to nurture my interests and also had me set up at one point researching something and then making a, a short documentary about it. So I, I researched uh, World War II. <laughs> uh, and I remember checking out books and finding images in the books. And then we had an, um, an animation stand with a still camera on it. So I took images of the images in the books and wrote a script and recorded that on a cassette tape and like made my first documentary that way. So, you know, that was my oh, uh, intro. How old were you when you, when you, when you um, made your first documentary? I think I was in middle school uh -huh. uh, at that point in time, probably eighth grade or mm -hmm. ninth grade going into high school. And um, I also had a friend Mandy Nelson, who was interested in film and media and theater. And I was in thespians, you know, I was, I was doing everything I could to, I guess, be in sort of clubs that would nurture that interest. And um, so my friend Mandy and I, we, the, I think the librarian told us about this. He said, oh, there's a contest where you can uh, make a video and win, there was a prize to win a, a Sony Walkman. And so, <laughs> yeah, remember those? <laughs> you were hitting so much history. You said uh, photo film development, yeah, VC dueling VCRs, <laughs> Sony Walkman. You know, we uh, according to the uh, analytics for our podcast, no one under seventeen listens to us anyway. But if any seventeen-year-old stumbled into our our podcast today, they're like, "What are they talking about?" <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have been through the formats, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but we made our little uh, film, and I think we must have used some VHS camcorders that they had in the library. And I think this was even maybe an advertisement for raisins. I don't know. This is, it's just so weird. And we made a video, and it won. And so Mandy and I both won uh, Sony Walkman. Oh, that's uh, cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and my parents talk about that time as I kept asking for a camera, you know, um, I'd like a camera for my birthday or for, for Christmas. And they thought I was too young to have a camera and that, you know, children don't, that's not something that a child should have, which is so interesting, right? Because now every child has, has a camera in their pocket right. with right. their phone. My 13 year old um, has a camera, right? You're right. Yeah. I was gonna say, when I explained to my girls about cameras when I was growing up, uh, like Darian said, most of our audience is probably Gen X and some older uh, millennials, but I try to explain to them, I'm like, you don't understand. We didn't just take pictures of everything <laughs> and delete it if we didn't, if it looked bad or the lighting didn't work or whatever, like you had one shot and you didn't know if your photo came out, you know, sometimes for several weeks. And then, you know, I also went to a school that had a dark room. You know, we had a photo lab in a dark room. I remember going in there and it's all red <laughs> with the lights <laughs> and the smell of the developer. And, you know, but they have no reference for it anymore. And it's really sad in some ways, because I think that's kind of where a lot of the creativity came from, you know, now we just do it all on apps, but, you know, using those older tools is kind of um, part of the medium. Absolutely. And um, we are finding in the School of Visual Art and Design that students are increasingly more interested in learning the, those technologies, which we still have and teach over here and, and always have. But uh, there was a time period where when digital was coming out, you know, I would say, yeah, mid to late 2000s, where students just would say, film is dead, you know, I don't wanna learn this anymore, yeah, it's boring. Yeah. And, uh, but now they're all like, they think it's super cool. 
Why, why do you think so, Lord? That's interesting to me. Like, you know, I remember, like, Jordan, I remember you talking, I remember, like, you know, going to the drugstore and dropping off your little tube of film again. And like you said, weeks later and paying for like 64 pictures and like two of them were any good, you know, or every time you saw a movie and there was always a sleuth character on, on there and they always had to take um, photos to the lab to develop. And there would always be some discovery made in, you know, under that red light. Remember that? Yeah. So what, Laura, why do you think, why do you think kids are interested in that's, that technology is like, what, 20, 30, 40 years? How, I'm, I don't know how old the technology is, but the, the use of it really ran out definitely at the beginning of the 21st century. Yeah, well, um, more than 100 years old for sure, you know, mm-hmm. um, film exposure and then motion picture um, since the 1890s. But um, I think that I think that students, well, first of all, the 80s are back in case you haven't noticed. Um, so the <laughs> 80s are kind of a thing. Um, so I have students who collect cassette tapes, which I think is interesting. Um, wow. We've had students get really interested in, in the VCRs that you know are in the back closet of their, their parents' house and you know finding those- Anybody things. ask you for your Walkman? No, and I still don't, I don't have that anymore, of course, yeah, <laughs> long gone. So I think there's, you know, the 80s have kind of been, kind of in a resurgence um, over the past several years and students like to go to the thrift store and, you know, dress up in the eighties clothes and stuff, or I have some students that are into that. And so I think it's that, but also it's, um, it's, it's just more of a curiosity about the history of the medium. And I, I think that because students are so used to having that instantaneous experience with it, when they learn that that's not the way it's always been, and you sort of start to show them what that tech, where basically the technology in their pocket came from, mm-hmm. they have a lot of interest in it. Whereas, uh, you know, a decade or 15 years ago or so, people wanted to leave the old, they saw it as old and unnecessary, and they wanted to just advance into the new right away. But now the new, uh, putting the, you know, having the camera in your pocket has been around for so long that it's just second nature. So people are maybe a little bit more curious about the, legacy technologies that led to the technologies that we have today. Do you yourself ever wax nostalgic for like dark rooms and VCRs? And do you ever, do you miss that technology, that era? Yes, I do in a lot of ways. Um, I've been thinking a lot about how the sound of that technology is really different and it's sort of a lost sound. Mm-hmm. So, um, the sound of a videotape going into a VCR and, you know, you stick it in and, you know, the sound. You that guys big metallic. Yeah, exactly. And you can hear the little machine come in and open up the tape and pull the ribbon, you know, out. Yeah, and that spin it. Yeah. When it's not to spin. Yeah. And so with um, my own transition, you know, I, I learned on film and then I learned video in that job at UGA and then in graduate school, I filmed with film and with video. So I was working in both. And then, of course, over the past, I guess, 12 years or 15 years or so, we transitioned away from tape into those, um, like a disc, right? A removable SD card of some kind. And there's been a variety of those over the years. But, um, but yeah, th- those are silent. They don't really make a noise when the camera is recording and yet, uh, so I miss that sound of the tape, you know, going into the into the camera and pushing it closed and hearing the tape spin out. It's just a sound that, you know, is lost. It's a lost sound that that none of my students will probably ever know unless they work in an archive or, you know, they they work in some kind of um, space that allows them to get access to those technologies. One of the things that I always thought was super interesting about, you know, uh, traditional film and, and photography was the mistakes that happen. Like with digital, I feel like, I don't know. And, and you would know better than I do because you do this for your job. I just sort of dabble, but it seems like everything is so clear, you know, or even if I take a bad photo with my cell phone or my DSLR, I just delete it and I don't really think about it. But, but with traditional film and, and, photography it's like sometimes those mistakes would have just really cool visual effects you know from an artistic standpoint bob ross would call it a happy accident 
right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so as a visual medium, I've always been drawn to that. Yeah, those double exposures when they happen, they were really cool, right? Yeah, you could work with those. Um, or when the film gets stuck in the camera and you open it up and you've got a flash frame, you got some exposure there. Uh, I've, I've noticed that sometimes students like to put in that sort of countdown leader, you know, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, boop, there's a beep, <laughs> you know, and, mm -hmm. and I'm like, well, why are you using that? And, you know, they, they just think it looks cool and it sounds cool, but um, it doesn't really serve a whole lot of a purpose anymore. Um, yeah, it's, it's anyway, it's, it's neat, those accidents. Yeah. But you're right. There's little audio clues and mm -hmm. visual cues. They were kind of like, like, like little cues, like, like something was about to happen. Like I'm about to watch something. I'm about to participate in something. Instead of something just happening is like, yeah, like you said, like the countdown, you know, yeah. like you kind of prep yourself. Uh, I, I think subconsciously, you don't sit there and consciously go, you know, oh, I'm about to, because you already know what you're about to do, but it just kind of, I think in a low grade builds up the anticipation that something, it frames the experience a little bit, you know? Yeah, definitely. And of course that countdown leader was, if you edited on film, which is how I was trained, that it, you had to have that at the head of your, of your film role. And you needed that single frame two to, to sync up with the beep on your soundtrack so that you knew you could sync up your picture with your sound, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I agree with you completely. It, it sort of yields this excitement, the sense of anticipation when you're seeing mm -hmm. it on the screen in the theater. And yet it's also this, this tool that editors used to signal to the, to, you know, to, to them, like that everything was in sync with the picture and the, and the sound. So. Okay, so we got a filmmaker on. I've got to ask you, what are some of your favorite films? Oh no, I don't. You know I, I got to do that. You know I got to do that. I hate this question because um, <laughs> I I like a lot of of different kinds of media and mm -hmm. um, but probably one of my favorite films of all time. It just gets my heart racing. I think it's such an exciting uh, film. You may never have heard of it. It's um it's called Man with a Movie Camera. And it was made by this uh, Russian avant-garde filmmaker uh, named Dziga Vertov. And it was, it just, it came out in the um, late 20s. It was produced in Soviet Russia. And it's sort of a, a day in the life of a Russian city. And inside of it, there's some propaganda and some messaging around like the new regime and the new, the new attitude and the new ideas that have come onto the scene there um, after the overthrow of the czar and the Russian revolution. And, um, but it's, it's so innovative. The cinematography just blow you away. And these are the hand crank cameras, right? That they were mm -hmm. using back then. And this was also before sound. And so um, there is no original um, soundtrack with it. No sync sound, you know, uh, where you see people's mouths moving and their voices come out. Um, instead though, the, the director, Dziga Vertov, at the time, he he apparently scored a, a soundtrack even though, or created notes for a soundtrack, even though that wasn't possible, even technically speaking at that time. And it would have been performed with live music for sure. And there's um, that, I think the Alloy Orchestra does a wonderful score too. And so if you ever go watch it, that makes sure you get the version that has the Alloy Orchestra soundtrack so you said he he wrote a soundtrack even though tech, was he anticipating the technology yes what, what, i think i think both anticipating that that it was coming that it was on the horizon as mm -hmm. well as um wanting to capture the materiality of the of the ideas that he was expressing so some a lot of the ideas in the film are about um, social change and changing society industrializing society moving away from the you know, the rural areas and into urban city environments, um, the speed of modern life. So he's trying to capture, you know, also machines and factories. And he's also trying to capture and express cinema itself. So the, the film is called Man with a Movie Camera because also the cameraman is in the film, making the film. So it's very self-reflexive in that way. So, mm. um, and when the film opens, it, the one of the first scenes is people gathering 
to a cinema to watch the film that you're about to see. So it's it's reflecting back on itself and its own making at the same time that it is also exploring this um, idea of a new society. So I just find it absolutely breathtaking and I've seen it so many times and uh, it's just so interesting to me, that film. And uh, and so cutting edge for, you know, still today, like, uh, you know, students dig it mostly. It's <laughs> a hundred like years later. Sorry? A hundred years later and it still holds up. I think so. And I think a lot of students do like it uh, because mm -hmm. it's so avant-garde um, and ahead of its time. Um, I think they don't like the length of it. It's kind of a long film. And uh, because it is, you know, silent, I think it's a little hard for contemporary audiences. It's not silent because there's music when you watch it. But mm -hmm. anyway, you know what I'm talking about, like yeah. old, old black and white. And sometimes people can't really uh, engage with that or young people can't engage with that. But I think for the most part, students do dig it and they like what it represents in terms of the energy, the, you know, experimentation. Cool. Where would someone be able to find that now, like at the local library, or would you have to go to, you know, a university and a film library? Is it available online? Yeah, I'm looking at my bookshelf over there to see, oh, do I have it? And I, I also tend to loan these things out. So sometimes I never get them back. But yeah, I think you can buy it as a DVD. And I, if you're at the University of South Carolina and you're a student or staff person here and you have access to like behind the firewall, I think we might have a streaming copy of it. Um, and uh, yeah, just look around. You might even be able to find a streaming copy on YouTube, but I wouldn't recommend, again, there's different versions with different soundtracks and you gotta get that one with the with a more recent Alloy Orchestra soundtrack. Otherwise, you're not gonna get the same vibe, you know, from it. So you're saying Dark Side of the Moon doesn't really work for this. <laughs> hey, you could experiment with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got another question. I don't know how often you get asked this question. What is your least favorite film? What film can you just say, I don't like that film? Or maybe oh. a genre, if it's really hard to pick like one. Yeah, I don't like reality TV, I have to say. Um, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> even though that comes out of a, a, it's sort of connected in a legacy way to documentary. Reality TV is so scripted. It's not, there's nothing real about it. Mm -hmm. And um and so, yeah, I, I just think it's terrible and I'm, I'm not at all interested. And I, I know why it's popular in part it's popular because it's cheap to produce and people are watching it. They wouldn't, you know, keep producing it if people weren't consuming it. But, um, but yeah, don't like reality TV. What about you, Joe? Do you like reality TV? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't <laughs> like reality TV. Um, <laughs> You know, I have friends that'll watch shows like The Bachelor or Big Brother, and I just can't can't relate. Now, I do remember when I was young watching The Real World, which was probably one of the first reality TV shows mm -hmm. um, on MTV. And it was interesting at that point, but I think you're right. I think, you know, since that time it's evolved into becoming something so scripted and sensationalized, mm -hmm. you know? So they're like, they put people in these situations to really encourage, you know, conflict and drama. And, and it's just, it leaves me feeling, you know, I don't know. I just, I can't get into it. Um, especially when there are, you know, relevant and, and intense and important things happening in the world. And it's like, I just can't bring myself to care about these housewives fighting over, you know, what they're going to wear to the gala. I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it. Yeah. I have to say, I don't, I don't like award shows, you know, Hollywood award shows for that same reason. I don't, I don't like to watch a bunch of rich people congratulating themselves. It's just <laughs> like, oh, give me a break. I, yeah, boring. Yeah, I, I concur with both of you on both of those. I could go on way longer than any of us would want to hear. But 
I'm not a big I'm not a big awards fan of almost any type of awards. And I, reality TV, I, I don't even no joke. I just had this conversation probably about a month ago with a friend of mine. I said, "Like, how is the Bachelorette a show? Like, what what happens? Like, what like seriously? I was confused. I was like, that thing's been around for twenty years." Doesn't everybody know what it is by now? Like, <laughs> like you know, like what? I don't understand how this is even a show. But people are allowed to dig. You know, you can't account for other people's taste. You know, there's tons of stuff I dig that no other people are like. What you watch that? You know, but um, yeah, reality TV is not at the top of my list in award shows. Most award shows, to be totally honest, I think are, I think most of them are kind of dumb. Now. The flip side of this is a whole other discussion. Getting as far as I tell young people all the time: if you're offered an award, take it. Oh yeah, take it. Get for your own professional, you know, sake. Take it. But yeah, I actually do enjoy award shows. Really? Like so I do. I like award shows. I like the pageantry of it, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but also I'm a sort of a root for the underdog kind of a person. Mm-hmm. So I'm always hoping that like, you know, the the documentary from wherever that wasn't very well known will get highlighted or things like that. Because some people work, you know, in these industries their whole lives and dedicate so much to their craft, whatever it is. And, you know, so having that recognition, I, I always do like to watch award shows. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of it. I mean, I went to art school and I know folks that were involved in theater and costume design and they make the wigs and they, you know, writers and all of that. And so maybe not so much the celebrity A-list factor, but just the, you know, people who have dedicated so much to something um, finally having like a moment. Like the technical Oscars, um, which apparently it's not well, it's not broadcast, at least I don't think that it is. And it's, yeah, all the, like you said, the designers behind the scenes, the, you know, technologists, the people that are making, you know, cutting edge sorts of discoveries that help to advance the entertainment industry one way or another. Those, those are cool. You, know, you, you get know, to learn like behind the scenes. And I think you, Joey, you just made an important differentiation. You're right. Yeah. I, I totally agree with what you said, just said, um, and I'm gonna be a bit of a hypocrite because if I get offered an award now, I, I'd say thank you. <laughs> okay. I say thank you. I used to in my youth, I used to like, no, I'm good. You know, I was too cool for that. I was too cool for that. Which there's some problems even with that too. You know that mindset. But now I just say really, and I, I just say thank you. I just say thank you. And I've even gone after a few awards um, because they were necessary. To be totally honest, to a certain point, people go like, you know, they. They are a point of validation. You know, people can't know you and your career. Like, who are you? What do you do? Well, how how can I trust that you're any good? But when they see a certain award from the place, from a place or people that they trust, you know, it's shorthand to get you to the discussion quicker or whatever, you know. So they are valuable. They are they're they're as worthy as anything else. They're as worthy as anything else. I think shorthand was a good way to put it. It's like, oh, okay, there's, you know, you're producing work of a of a certain quality or of a, you know, that's mm-hmm. gotten this recognition. So I think that's mm-hmm. interesting. So I had a question though to switch gears uh, quickly, if that's okay. Um, some of the other interviews that we've done so far this season with our guests, as we've been talking and kind of just going through their process and their work the theme of community has come up a couple of times and how um, they're how they're using their artistic medium or their work to either explore the concept of community or to forge a stronger community in in whatever way that that's happening for them. So, I mean, how would you does this apply to your work? Do you think do you think about community, even if it's just with your students as a teacher? Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. This is a a really important concept and I would say it's something that definitely is, um, present in my teaching for sure, because 
because every classroom is a community. Uh, and we're, of course, a, a unique community of 20 or 25 people inside of a, a slightly larger uh, community of the School of Art and Design, which is inside of an even bigger community of the University of South Carolina. So yeah, I, I do think about uh, community um, in that way all the time. And it's really a special thing, I think, when you have a class of, of people who, especially in, in a creative field and in, in the arts, that you have to really create a safe space for everyone to feel like they can explore uh, ideas that they find interesting uh, and uh, fail at, at the exploration of those ideas and, and or succeed at that and, and still feel like they are a part of the community that they are in. You know, so nurturing that classroom environment and making it a space that everybody feels okay to be in and wants to come to, you know, twice a week to learn from each other is, is definitely something I'm, I'm always trying to think about. Sometimes, I mean, every class is different too. Sometimes you, especially during the pandemic, it's been extremely difficult to keep people together. Sometimes there's lots of absences, you know, and then there's illness and there's um, trauma and strife, you know, at home, outside of school. So I would say the past couple of years have been really challenging around that, that notion of how you build community and and nurture it. And now that we're all finally back in person, for the most part, inside of the school, you know, taking classes in person, uh, getting students to feel reconnected to the School of Visual Art and Design is is has been challenging for us. Um, you know, what kinds of activities do they want to do outside of the classroom? What sorts of visiting artist events do they want to have? You know, do they want to meet in person with these visitors when they're on campus or do they would they rather just, you know, click into a Zoom link and listen in? It's really been a challenge to, to figure out what will keep the community thriving together, but we're working on it. And as far as in my own work, um, you know, in, in the field of documentary, making an impact with your film on communities of various kinds is really important. Most documentary filmmakers have that usually as an end goal that they themselves might not identify as an organizer or as an activist, um, They or they might. Uh, and But either way, usually there's a desire there to use the film for social impact or you know, impact on a community or um, to, to change some aspect of society. So, uh, so, so definitely that, that concept is, I would say, inside of me as a, as a maker, for sure, too. I think more recently, though, I've been, I'm, I haven't made anything recently, uh, a film recently, on, completely on my own. I've been helping people with some of their projects, but serving in a supporting role, you know, as crew. I would like for you to share with, uh, with our family, and it's something I'm really, I was really proud that you did and proud that I knew you when you did it. When you and I were, um, Laura and I were Indy Grits Fellows the same year. I can't remember what year that was, Laura. Do you? Um, it was, was it 2018? That sounds, okay, sure. <laughs> or 19, but I'm not sure. <laughs> you and another filmmaker who's been, also been on the grain with us, Betsy Newman, the two of you did a historical project about 29203, which the grain is one of, you know, at the center of the grain, and you guys explored histories. You know, I, you know, I've grown up in two nine two three. I still, I'm in two nine two three right now. I'm right up the block from you, actually, in the old Indy Grits House, which is now the ten thirteen Co-op. This is a place I love, and I meant that earlier. I'm literally trying to move back in here at this very moment. I'm looking at rental properties and stuff. But you guys expand. So I, I think I know a lot about. I grew up here and all this good stuff schooled here, but you guys expanded it far beyond anything I knew before all the way to the present. And that was really, I thought, cool. And I thought, well done and really about community. That was really about community because those, those are kind of projects that, you know, all kind of projects excite me, but that one really caught my eye, really caught my eye. Yeah. Um, that was a great project to be part of with, um, with Betsy. And I, of course, the theme that year was looking, well, yeah, two cities, but before there was maybe even the theme, there was the effort to actually have a physical space in 29203, um, mm -hmm. right? Where I think that was maybe the first year they opened the um, house at the end of the block there. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Did you call it? It's 1013? Is that the address? Now it's, now it's, a 10, it's 1013 Duke Avenue. And now it's called the 1013 Co-op. Co-op, excuse me. 
but right that's when it before it disincarnation it was the Andy Gritz house right and so you know, physically being in that neighborhood and trying to bring the Indie Grits festival experience into that neighborhood so that more parts of Colombia, more neighborhoods in Colombia could have more um, immediate access to the, uh, to the film festival, to the film and media festival was in part um, an initiative too. And to introduce maybe the rest of Colombia to 29203. And so mm-hmm. I think that's one reason why Betsy and I thought that would be a good project to pursue. And when I moved to the neighborhood, uh, I didn't know anything about it. And the year that I moved in, was it centennial, I guess? Mm. Is that right? I moved in in 1999. And I think I think it might be that it was chartered in 1899. So I, mm. it was anyway having its 100th anniversary as a as a community. And um, there was this bus tour you could go on that took you all around different streets and neighborhoods and highlighting unique properties, be they, you know, old and historic or um, long ago abandoned or so I it really made an impression on me moving to Columbia and having that happen that I moved to this neighborhood I didn't know anything about. And then all of a sudden it was a hundred years old and I could, you know, learn all about it. And so, yeah, so I think Betsy also remembered those, those days. And um, we, we wanted to try to, I guess, resurrect some of that in the project that we put together, some of the history, some of the stories. Yeah. It was cool. That was Where very can cool. people see that? Is it still like, I, does Indie Grits have like uh, archives on their website or? It was an installation. Uh, so oh. you would actually, you went to a physical space and we called it the Eau Claire Story Museum. And uh, we asked people to donate images that we hung up and we did um, some audio recordings with different community leaders and and regular folks also. And those were on little, um, not Walkmans, but you know, those little digital digital devices, kind of like a Walkman, but it's digital. And people could put headset on and listen to um, people just talking about the community. And then some of those were edited thematically. So some of them might've been edited around history or personal memories of high school um, and also themes like gentrification and community change. So anyway, it doesn't exist in that format anymore, but I know that there's an interest in getting those digital files donated to the university and maybe as part of special collections because they do have some oral histories at the university. So um, so that that might be in the future. It was very cool. It was very cool. Thanks. Thank you. Laura, we have this segment we call the Cherry World. Did you know Jim Thickpen? Oh, I know, I know who you're talking about, but I, so, I didn't know him personally. So uh, Grain family, Jim Thigpen was a legendary theater professional here in Columbus, South Carolina, mm-hmm. with a, a local professional, but with a national reputation. Mm-hmm. And one of he, he had so many catchphrases, Badubas, Badabas. He used to call me Darian Face. He called everybody Face, Laura Face, Jody Face. You know, he had all this stuff. But one of the things, uh, Jim is no longer with us, but one of the things he used to say was, uh, a cherry world and a cherry world that meant if everything were perfect like when you would first start a theater like you first start as a director you start conceiving you know like i want i want to do this play how am i going to do it and he's like you know you'd always focus well i can't do that because i don't i don't have this amount of money or i don't have that and Jim was like no 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 start with the cherry world if you could do this any way you wanted to how would it be so we've kind of started a little segment here we've done it a few times We're calling it our, unofficially, we call it the cherry world, where you get a magic wand. And within the cherry world, you are omnipotent when it comes to art within the 29203. So the question is, if you are the omnipotent magician of the cherry world in 29203, you can wave your magic wand and make anything arts related happen in, for, to, with, 29203, what would it be? Wow, what a wonderful question. Um, I, my, the first thing that came to my mind, I'll just go with that, mm-hmm. was, was maybe not super specific, but I want more pedestrian 
oriented activities. So, you know, things that get people outside and walking and gathering into, into outdoor spaces. So of outdoor film screenings, which I know we've done uh, before at, uh, at 1013 Co-op, mm -hmm. uh, formerly Indigrits Lab. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I just envision that, that mural that got painted at, on the side of the building on Monticello, um, the mm. artist um, Angelotti. Yes. Pronouncing yes. her name right. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's right. I think. I think. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. like that, you know, was done for the two cities. I think of uh, Indie Grits um, that year, but that was sort of the focus spot and trying to sort of gather people there for events, for screenings, for you know, there's a garden there that Betsy Newman helped to start. So things that art and culture activities that bring people outside and that bring people into more of a kind of pedestrian neighborhood oriented vibe with, with the community of 29203, I would love. So I realize that's not a specific event, but it's more of a, you know, let's support pedestrian and biking culture and whatever outdoor arts and culture activities that could happen that would facilitate that. More of that is what I would want. Sounds cool to me. What'd you think, Jody? So you're actually bringing back a memory for me. So the first time I came out to Columbia for Indie Grits, we met at the Nick Theater. Um, and I'd not been to that part of Columbia before. So I was there right on, I guess, Main Street, right in front of the uh, in front of the theater. And there were all these beautiful handmade scarves tied to the trees and oh, like blankets and stuff. The yarn for, bombing. The yarn bombing. Yeah, yes. yarn bombing. Right. Yeah. It just, you know, so obviously I think, I think a lot of those, some of those were for people who maybe were unhoused. If they needed something, they could take something. Um, but just, you know, the vibrant color and the beautiful fiber arts, even if it's more arts and crafts and sort of, um, you know, craft instead of fine art. Um, but just, it was just a beautiful vision of the street. I mean, everybody was out because there was a marketplace that day. So you had artisans selling like handmade jewelry and things like that. And, and the whole street had all this yarn bomb, you know, artwork everywhere. The, the Museum of Art is right there. The Nick Theater is right there. And I just thought, you know, this is, Columbia, sometimes people don't think of it, but it's a cool city and it, and there's art and there's, you know, music and film and all of these great things going on. So I think more of that is always a good thing. Yeah. Um, Hyatt Park is being renovated. I can't wait to see what the end result is there. They're, they're daylighting a stream that runs through the park that got covered up years ago. And uh, Eau Claire, of course, means, does it mean clear water, clear stream, something like that? But yeah, it is clear water. I think that's right. All the kind of springs that are in that part of the, of the city. And most, most of them, I guess, you know, covered over after many years. But um, they're daylighting that one. I think it's just going to be fantastic when that is finished. I can't wait to see it. And that'd be a great spot for any kind of art, culture, craft, you know, yarn bomb kind of activity. Um, I guess the other thought I have, and this is probably, I know you need to wrap this up and it's probably just too much of a tangent is, you know, when I say that I want more pedestrian activity, I have to recognize that, you know, it's been unsafe to walk in lots of areas in 29203 because the lack of sidewalks, you know, mm -hmm. that's what a lot mm -hmm. of that streetscaping has been about is fixing the sidewalks. So, and making it safe for people to cross the street, you know, so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Accessible. So yeah, making it accessible to people and safe, um, making it pedestrian activity a safe activity is the first step. And then we can imagine the festivals and all the things that will support and grow up around that. Well, I think um, City Tourism Department of Columbia, South Carolina, owes both of you a huge debt right now. <laughs> and it's just that both of you are checking the mail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Happy to join the payroll anytime. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to wrap it up. Thank you, Laura Kissel, for being our, 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 I was about to say, our host. In the way you are our host, I guess, today. 
Well, thank you guys so much. It's been great. And I would love to, um, you know, meet in person and keep talking. Oh, most definitely. That's got to happen. We got so many. Jordy and I, it's just kind of a seed, a kernel right now. But we've had so many cool people on here. We're trying to figure out, like, we got to get some of these people in the same room together, man. You know, just vibing. and Yeah. Like, I can see us doing a, just a Cherry World episode. We do a round robin and people, you know, go from person to person. People get to talk about what they see for 29203, what they wish. And we can talk about how they link and how they end. Because once you get, uh, like, when Betsy was on, we had three people on. And once they all started talking, once we all started talking, I was actually five of us, they all kind of started interconnecting and interlinking. It was cool. It was real cool. Yeah, I don't think I've heard that episode. I'll have to look for it. All right. All right. Laura, anything you want to say in parting? No, just thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Jody, what you got? What you got? So much. It was a great conversation and, and we'd love to have you back. I think, honestly, what we're talking about here is, is creating a community within our guests of, of artists and, you know, what do they call them? Thought pioneers. Okay, wow. <laughs> thought leaders. Yeah, thought leaders. <laughs> but you know, I mean, just regular people, but but the people. Yeah. The good yeah. people of 29203, yeah. as you like to call them. Yep. The lovely people of 29203. And on that note, I think we are out of here. Be safe and be good, family. The Grain Podcast is brought to you through a grant from the Knight Foundation in partnership with Indie Grits Labs and the lovely people of 29203. Thanks to our audio engineer, Isabel Alvarado, and our hosts, Darren McLeod and Jody Srutek. And don't forget to subscribe to The Grain for more great episodes.